to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 98, where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by tuning into WBLD Channel 47, airing right after Talking Johnny's All Night Bull Session. Love that show. That's one of the biggest shows in Bloodhaven, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or Bloodhaven, whatever you want to say. <laughs> we'll uh, say it both ways. Well, so both ways as we go through uh, reading Nightwing number 93, July 2004 cover date. Story is called Slow Burn. Writer Dever- Devin Grayson, penciler Patrick Zercher, inker Andy Owens, colorist Gregory Wright, letterer Clem Robbins, editor Michael Wright, and the cover price was $2.25. U.S. three dollars and fifty cents Canadian. I really miss those twenty-five cent incremental jumps. You know what's funny? Uh, when, I, when, I, when I saw that, I was like, <laughs> "That was the last price I wanted to pay." I got to say, like, that was as high. I think that was my 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 threshold. Uh, even though I've pay, I've paid plenty more since then, but uh, not oh, heavily. Yeah. Not well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into it, let's uh, let's talk about the lady who wrote this book here, uh, Devin Grayson. Uh, Devin Khalil Grayson was born, we think, Jennifer Eisenman, on some date, probably in the early 1970s, on a hippie communal farmstead in New Haven, Connecticut. Following her parents' divorce, she and her mother would relocate to Berkeley, California. Uh, she studied to be an actress at the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco, also the Drama Studio London in Berkeley, and several other notable institutions. Uh, she would change her focus from acting to writing, and she transferred from a local community college to Bard College in Annandale on Hudson, New York. Uh, Bard College alumni includes notable possible Bob Haney relative and patron saint of the show, Chevy Chase. That's right. Yeah, just right upstate, not too far away from where I'm sitting right now. Indeed. Uh, Now, as far as Grayson's comics fandom, she was not a fan of comics growing up. Not that she didn't like them per se, they just weren't part of her childhood in any way. She discovered comics after seeing an episode of Batman the animated, Animated Series on television. In a 2001 interview with The Advocate magazine, she says, The show very clearly illustrated that he had a relationship with this kid. He raised him. And that was just an amazing, funny, scary, and weird thing to think about. We've all come in late for a curfew or done something our parents didn't approve of, and you get your dad frowning over you. But what if your dad was Batman? I just became completely obsessed with that relationship. This would lead to Grayson eventually checking out the comics the show was based on and much of DC Comics' offerings. In a 2007 piece for comic book resources, she shared, I left the store that day with The Dark Knight Returns, a handful of Teen Titans, not in order, an old Batman archive from the 50s, The Killing Joke, Watchmen, a bunch of Sandmans, and Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. Quite a and primer she, bundle right there. It is, right? That'll, uh, imagine buying Teen Titans not in order with not even really knowing anything except who Nightwing is. Yeah, really. That's, what that's I, a terrifying what prospect. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this green kid named Logan? I thought that was Wolverine. What the? Uh, now, uh, she gets into the comic biz in a very unorthodox way. She cold calls. Oh. She says, I just didn't know any better, and I happened to get Denny O'Neill. Because, by the way, when you call DC, they just put you through to whomever you ask for without asking who you are. And I asked for the Batman editor. She also sent samples to DC editor Scott Peterson, and she was eventually offered a gig by other DC editor, Darren Vincenzo. 
Uh, her first published work was a 10-page story featuring Nightwing and Donna Troy. It was called Like Riding a Bike, and it appeared in the Batman Chronicles number 7 that came with a winter 1997 cover date. She'd wind up uh, writing several characters uh, of the Bat family, including Catwoman, and also a Nightwing Huntress miniseries that ran from May through August 1998 cover. Uh, the latter was met with a little bit of mixed response from the Usenetters of the day, who have already noticed Devin's great te- Devin's tendency to have uh, every female character fall madly in love with Dick Grayson. He is pretty hunky, though. You got to got to admit, you know. Hunky, yes. Uh, now it was around this time that DC was having a sort of back to basics approach. This was the era of the Magnificent Seven JLA. These were the iconic takes that hadn't been explored or featured in the post-crisis DC universe. Yeah, and another franchise that was in dire need of an iconic take was The Titans. In 1996, New Titans had petered out, ending the 130-issue run almost at an almost unrecognizable state than when it started. Also in 1996, Teen Titans Volume 2 was launched, and it was a book on which writer-artist Dan Jurgens was allegedly under orders not to use any Titans characters on his team. <laughs> he snuck Lilith Clay on the team under a hood using the codename Omen. Cover dated December 1999, DC decided to sprinkle some JLA dust on the failing franchise when they launched the three-issue JLA Titans, calling the Technus Imperative miniseries. Uh, written by Devin Grayson, art from Phil Jimenez, event is notable for featuring every single character who had ever been a Titan. Mm-hmm. From here, Titans, is Volume 1, would launch, uh, featuring the iconic Titans characters as they would train the next generation of young heroes. Grayson, along with artist Mark Buckingham, would be the initial creative team, and the first issue released with a March 1999 cover date. Now, this run, which I recently reread and enjoyed uh, the at least maybe the first couple of arcs of it... Uh, okay. It was met with a somewhat mixed reaction. Um, very early on, uh, Grayson would introduce a character called Goth, who, uh, if you know Marilyn Manson, you know Goth, because Goth was basically Marilyn Manson. Was, yeah, and the two, and the two could not be uh, uh, cut away from each other. No, no, because if you look at the picture of Goth from Titan Secret Files and Origins, number one, yeah. also March 1999, the picture of him is literally a swipe of Manson's Mechanical Animals uh, album from 1998. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll actually include both pictures from from this on the blog so you can take a look for yourself. Not that it really has anything to do with anything. It's just a, a funny little, it's a funny haha, sure. I guess. Um, now, there was also a revelation that the character Damage was a victim of sexual abuse, and it really didn't quite land the way I think it was intended. Uh, Grayson would remain on Titans until issue number 20. That was October 2000 cover date, leaving the title just in time for a pretty uh, drastic shift in editorial, which tanked the book pretty quickly quality-wise. Oh, well. Uh, It's worth noting that in the years leading up to her professional writing career, Devin was a member of the Titans Talk APA, that's the Amateur Press Association. Of her time there and how it helped her when she started writing these characters, she said, Where Titan Talk was really helpful for me was in introducing me to people who had longer comic reading backgrounds than I did. There was so much I didn't know about the characters and the continuity that when I was getting started, and of course there are no better teachers than other people who genuinely care about the characters. I guess some other fond tea talk memories include sitting with various tea talkers and getting them to open up about their favorite characters. And you know, to this day, I can't help thinking about those people when I think about the characters, and it's nice. It gives me something to work towards. Would Leah like this Tempest moment? Would Laurie approve of this Donna scene? What would Charles think about Flash acting this way? Will Tim laugh at this Roy joke? Can I get a Panther cameo in for Bonnie? 
Now, uh, when discussing the fan fiction element of Tea Talk, she says, it makes, it makes it all more personal in a nice way. I'm also glad I got to experience the freedom of fan fiction be- before being governed by the restraints of pro writing. In many ways, fanfic allows you to create much better stories. But I'll be straight with you. Despite the success of so many T-Talk alums, announcing that you're part of an APA is no way to impress editors at Marvel or DC. In some ways, they're really pretty down on that kind of fandom. I had actually already long since quit T-Talk by the time I got my first professional assignment. But knowing that I had been in my past, uh, the my editors gave me a big lecture about not reading or participating in APAs anymore. In addition to their prejudices about APAs, there's a logistical legal concern that reading fanfic could lead to lawsuits if a freelancer accidentally or otherwise picked up a story element from an unpublished work and used it in a professional script. She continued, We're actually asked by the legal department to return all amateur stories and proposals unread with a big CC note to the legal department stating that we did so. Uh, This is the same rule that makes it illegal, yes, illegal for an editor to read an unsolicited script. Do not, I repeat, do not send script samples with your proposals until an editor asks for one. If you do, they'll have to throw the whole thing away. There are individual editors who are friendly to the concept of and people involved with APAs and fan fiction, but the official company policy at DC is to keep it utterly separate from the professional realm, so keep that in mind if you're trying to break in. Uh, And we will touch on Grayson's fan fiction later in the episode, but that policy is still in place for DC, Marvel, and I think every uh, creative company basically can't do it. They can't just take unsolicited stuff. Certainly, certainly. Now, uh, during this time, Grayson was also part of the creative team for DC's ambitious Batman No Man's Land event that took up most of 1999. Uh, No Man's Land featured a post-earthquake Gotham City that had been evacuated and pretty much abandoned by the United States government. Those who remained would live in a lawless wreck that was left of Gotham City. And uh, that's almost definitely a cosmic treadmill or a weird comics history in the making, so we won't go too deep in that right now. This is one of my favorite uh, Batman story story arcs. It's really excellent. It's actually the one that kind of drew me back into buying comics more regularly when I had taken Mm -hmm. my little uh, 90s break. But uh, also in 1999, Grayson wrote a Black Widow three-issue limited series featuring art from J.G. Jones for the still-new Marvel Knights imprint. The miniseries featured a different Black Widow, Yelena Belova, something that many used netters at the time attributed to the fact that Grayson likely hadn't the foggiest idea who Natasha Romanoff was. Yeah, the uh, used netters of the time were, uh, weren't were too welcoming. Uh, well, well, maybe a, a choice few. A few of them would certainly work, yeah. <laughs> now, Batman Gotham Knights number 1, cover dated March 2000, marked the first time a Batman ongoing series would launch with a female writer. And uh, trying to jog our memories here, it might still be the only book with that distinction if we limit the Bat, relaunch, the bat launches to the ones having Batman mm, in the title. I couldn't think of any offhand. I could think of, like, Batgirl, Batwoman. Uh, sure. I could think of those, but none with just Batman in the title. And this is a pretty big deal, considering this was... This was from an age before every every year we had relaunches. That's so, not true, yeah. You know, yeah, you're not launching books constantly like you are now. Uh, I think the previous Batman ongoing launch would have been 1992's Batman Shadow of the Bat. And I think the next would be all the way uh, to the Morrison time where he did Batman and Robin. So, I mean, this is... Was Shadow, pre- Shadow was deal. after Legend of the Dark Knight, right? Yeah, Legend it. of the okay. Dark Knight was uh, like in the late 80s. That was notable for like being the first one... Outside of Batman and Detective and right. Batman Family, I believe, yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So in 2001, Grayson would write the three the three issue prestige format Vertigo series User, which took a look at what we now know as MMORPGs, massively multiplayer online role playing games, of which Devin was an avid player, and they would have been new then. Uh, in case you don't know, these are store- games like Sword of Avalon, World of Warcraft. I'm sure there are a hundred more I've never heard of. <laughs> At least, <yes. laughs> Now, also in 2001, she would do some Marvel work. She wrote uh, X-Men Evolution, which was based on the animated series, and also Ghost Rider, the Hammer Lane, that was under the Marvel Knights imprint. A two th- that 2001 advocate piece we read earlier refers to Grayson as having been a, quote, backseat Betty during her youth. Don't go to Urban Dictionary for the definition. Uh, we, we're pretty sure they just mean that she wrote on the back of plenty of motorcycles. Yeah, it doesn't mean what you might think of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Grayson says of Ghost Rider, she says, I knew him from tattoos and the back of motorcycle jackets. I had no idea he was a comic book character. In 2002, Grayson would finally have the opportunity to be the ongoing chronicler of Dick Grayson's adventures, replacing Chuck Dixon. Her first issue was Nightwing number 71, cover dated uh, up, sorry, September 2002. Now, as for that Grayson name, uh, though born, we think, Jennifer Eisenman, Devin had her name legally changed to Devin Khalil Grayson in her early 20s. During an August 9, 2004 interview with AlvarosComicBoards.com, she was asked if Grayson was just a pen name, and she responded with, It isn't true. Devin Khalil Grayson is my real and legal name. It's what's on my driver's license, passport, social security, etc. I've never written under a pseudonym. I was born with a different name, but had it legally changed in my early 20s, well before I was working in comics or even thinking about such. In response to sexual abuse in my childhood that made me feel like I needed to distance myself from my past a little bit psychologically. I told this to Wizard Magazine when they interviewed me for the very first time something like seven years ago and said they could run that part of the story as long as they were willing to include some phone numbers for national sexual abuse hotlines. But they didn't want the piece to be a downer. I guess someone got the rumor into circulation without the context, and that actually has been a little painful for me just since the whole idea was to move on from that part of my life, and now I get constantly asked about it. Believe me, if I'd known I'd be writing Bat Books someday... I would have picked a different last name. Uh, that reply has been and probably is still uh, rather hotly contested whenever the subject comes up, but not. we don't feel like that's our business anyway. That's <laughs> right. her, She changed her name, her reasons are her own, and that is all there is to be said about that. That's a fact. Now let's hop across the table to Patrick Zercher. He was born August 29th, 1963 in Dayton, Ohio. Seems like uh, Patch keeps to himself, so there really isn't all that much to report. Uh, Early in his career, his art would appear in the superhero-themed tabletop role-playing game, uh, including villains and vigilantes, champions, uh, among a few others. He would uh, provide inks to the Villains and Vigilantes comic book series that came from Eclipse Comics. First issue had a December 1986 cover date. For the next decade or so, Zercher would do various projects for Blackthorn, Caliber, and had a relatively lengthy stint on Green Hornet from Now Comics. In 1993, he did some fill-ins for DC Comics on Justice League Quarterly Number 10, that's had a spring 1993 cover date, as well as two issues of Dark Stars, this is issues 8 and 9, April and May 1993. His first Marvel work was New Warriors Number 55, that was January 1995 cover date, and he'd remain on the title until its cancellation at Number 75 in September 1996 cover date. Since New Warriors was in the Spider-Man office, this was during the days of the multiple editors-in-chiefs at Marvel Comics. We talked about that, I think, believe 
in the Clone Wars episode. I think so. Uh, He would also do some Spidey work while he was uh, hanging Hmm. around. Uh, Handled pencil chores on the licensed comic Star Trek Early Voyages for Marvel's short-lived Paramount Comics imprint. Zertry would succeed Mark Mark Bagley on the uh, Thunderbolts title. His first T-Bolts work was issue 45, December 2000 cover date, and he would take over full-time with issue 51, June 2001 cover date. And he would join the Nightwing team full-time with issue number 86, December 2003, and he stayed on until the very issue we're about to discuss. Yeah, but first let's uh, set the table a little bit, get you up to speed of what's been going on. In Nightwing, over the past several issues, an oversized criminal kingpin has discovered Dick Grayson's dual identity and has begun to systematically take his life apart. He's destroyed bits from his past, ruined his career, even blew up the building he lived in. We know what you're thinking. Hey, I already read that story. I don't remember Nightwing being in it at all. (laughs) Well, just you wait, folks. We will get to that, too. Yes, we will. Uh, Nightwing number 93 opens atop a building in Bloodhaven, or Bloodhaven. Uh, <laughs> Captain Amy Rohrbach of the Bloodhaven. Blue- oh, Jesus. Let's go, uh, the Blood- let's go Bloodhaven. Let's just do let's it. Let's do Bloodhaven. People yes, want to uh, hear, you know. I didn't put any umlauts in no. the uh, script, so we're, <laughs> we're just Bloodhaven. Uh, so Captain Amy Rohrbach of the Bloodhaven Police Department, as well as her husband, they've set up a bat signal in order to get Nightwing's attention. Hey, would you look at that? It worked. Yes, Nightwing shows up and he goes, this signal isn't a good idea. Bloodhaven's not like... I didn't know how else to reach you. You don't have a phone anymore, and no one's seen you since... Since, she deduced that Nightwing and Officer Richard Grayson were one and the same. Uh, that, that is to say, Dick Grayson was a cop, uh, and she kicked him off the Bloodhaven, Bloodhaven uh, police force. <laughs> Amy calls him with some dire news. That reporter, Maxine Michael, she knows your identity. Blockbuster had him profiling you, uh, ex-officer Grayson, I mean. She was convinced that Blockbuster would use Dick's connection with the PD as an excuse, an excuse to attack us. Now, the first Blockbuster, a real name, Mark Desmond, he first appeared in Detective Comics number 345, November 1965 cover date, and he was created by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. This guy is Blockbuster Blockbuster Mark's brother, Roland Desmond. Uh, his first appearance as Blockbuster was in Starman number 9, April 1989. Uh, he was created by, or at least in this form, he was created by Roger Stern and Tom Lyle. Yeah, he started out as a criminal mastermind and would make sporadic appearances in the Bat Books. He'd eventually take an experimental steroid in an attempt to combat nailness, which made him lose his intellect. Then he'd make a deal with the devil during Underworld Unleashed in order to regain his smarts, and as of this issue, he's kind of a Kingpin-esque figure. Kingpin for Marvel, that is. Yeah, so Wilson Fiske character. Right, exactly. Uh... Now, Dick, uh, he seems touched that Amy would go to such lengths to warn him. Uh, Amy takes it one step further, offering him back his gun as well as his badge. Take these, please. I never should have made you turn them in. I can't protect you if you're not. Amy, listen. It's not your job to protect me. It's the other way around. I mean, legally. As a police officer, you can... You have more... a pause... (laughs) You have more options. We next follow Nightwing over to the Haven Hotel. Uh, are you sure that's not a motel, Chris? It's a pretty seedy, it might be like a motor lodge. It's a pretty seedy looking place, isn't it? It's almost like a boarding house, if you ask me. (laughs) It's a a, a Uh, hostel. (laughs) Either way, uh, he's there to attempt to chat up Maxine Michaels to try and convince her to keep his secret quiet. Yeah, he bursts in and goes, do you have any idea how much trouble you've caused? 
Uh, that might not be the best tone to use when trying to appeal to her. You know, she's sort of it's a, like starting. It's like starting a starting a conversation with "Hey, idiot." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, moron, listen to me. <laughs> Maxine replies, "Look, I was following a legitimate news story. I sympathize with you, kid, but I'm not the one running around with a life-threatening secret." She attempts to assuage herself of any guilt in the matter. I just made the connection a few hours ago. If Desmond made it before, then, then that's on your head. I just told them that Grayson was a cop who got shot in the shoulder and was too good to have been unceremoniously fired. I guess he had someone else watching you as Nightwing and put two and two together. Man, if only he was still running with a Batman who'd wear a rainbow-colored costume to distract <laughs> yeah. from his injuries. This whole thing could have been avoided. So he was a big distraction. Very simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now Maxine puts her hands on Dick's shoulders to comfort him. And moments later falls victim to a bullet in the head. Yeah. Uh, the bullet blows through the window with a crack and into poor Maxine's dome with a kush. Then Blockbuster bursts through that very same window. Yeah, he says, Nightwing, I'm so glad you're here. What did you do? Uh... I'm not a world-class detective myself, but I'm pretty sure he just blew Maxine's brains out, right? Yeah, really, she's, she's laying right there, right? Well, what do you think happened? Yeah, okay with it. <laughs> Blockbuster says, I'm just tidying up loose ends, but this gives me a perfect opportunity to talk about your future, which, as it happens, is going to look a lot like this. And so uh, Nightwing checks in on uh, Ms. Michaels, and yeah, duh, she's dead. She's dead? Uh, we just said that. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't kill you. There isn't one, Nightwing. Not one. That's the best part. Nor is there a single good reason for me to harm a hair on your head. So you're Dick Grayson by day. Who cares? It's a useful piece of information, but it's not the real secret. He is, of course, alluding to the fact that with this information, there are plenty of other folks that he could hurt. Uh... Upon hearing this, Dick hops onto Desmond's back and holds his baton against his throat. And he says, if you go near any of them, I swear to God, I'll... Oh, yes. I know, I know. That's the secret. The essential truth of your nature. You could take every beating I could dish out. You might even enjoy them. Hmm, that's an odd comment. It's uh, kind of strange. It uh, <laughs> might be alluding to a comment from Devin Grayson about Dick being a, quote, Touch junkie, unquote. Uh, uh, that's a concept that might float in fan fiction, but it's kind of silly here. and It's not even alluded to in the story, so we don't really have no. context for it. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, we, 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 will, we will touch a little bit more on the, the touch junkie-ism a bit later on. Uh, Desmond then elbows Dick through several walls while laughing about how little Dick seems to care about his own personal safety and well-being. They continue to fight down a hall, Roland seemingly playing with Nightwing with every shot they exchange. Your Nightwing punching Blockbuster with a walk. I'll take out the people you care about. Hell, even strangers you stand next to on the street. Dick lands a kick with a fuck. You won't be able to shake someone's hand without ma marking them for death. Another kick from Dick. Whack! Do you like being alone, Dick? The fight continues into a stairwell where Nightwing goes, Shut up, Raleigh. Just shut up. With a crash, Nightwing punches Desmond into the stairwell, and he falls about a story. 
Uh, nice of him to call him Raleigh as he does so. That's very familiar, very <laughs> nice. Friendly, yeah, yeah. It's very, very keeping it casual. <laughs> uh, being folksy uh, from uh, from old Dick there. Now, Blockbuster, he's pretty heavily bloodied up, but he still won't stop running his mouth. Yeah, you can't. You, once you start, you can't <laughs> back down now. He says, uh, I'll make sure you can't save any of them. I'll make sure you relive over and over your failure to save my mother. Now, Blockbuster's mother, Joyce Desmond, died sometime around issue 50 of this series, and it's something that Blockbuster clearly blames Nightwing for. She had a heart attack while being in a car accident, uh, which only occurred because of a fight between Nightwing and another baddie. Uh, Now, back to the scene here, Dick continues to pound away. Which has now become your failure to save your relationship, your circus, the residents of your building, Ms. Michaels. Then, from off-panel... Get out of the way, Nightwing. This is Tarantula, the second female Tarantula. She is climbing up the stairwell, and she has her pistol fixed on Blockbuster's oversized dome. She tells Dick to step aside so she can, you know, take care of things. A suggestion that Raleigh thinks is outrageously humorous. Don't you see, you stupid girl? This very moment he's thinking of how to save me from you. Even my life is more important to him than his own. With Nightwing holding him by the collar, arm cocked back, ready to throw another punch, Roland continues. And that's how I'll take him apart. Loved one by loved one. Innocent by innocent. It will never stop. Nightwing's thought caption reads, he's right. It's never going to stop. It's never going to stop. I can keep this up forever. It's never going to stop. Every loved one, every stranger. Every mistake I make, every life I risk, it's never going to stop. Never going to stop. Never. The Nightwing releases his grip on Desmond and steps away. Stop it. Stop. Tarantula then blows Desmond's brains out. Hmm. And looks like Nightwing allowed it to happen at the very Uh least, I would say. It wasn't an accessory (laughs) to it, but that's uh, for the police and the lawyers to figure out. Yes. Uh, Dick looks at his bloodied hands. Maybe that's an allusion to the death he just allowed to occur. I have a feeling it surely is. And (laughs) Daisily walks up the stairwell, eventually reaching the roof of the hotel, where he finally collapses. So sorry, Bruce. I'm so sorry. I I failed you. And he doesn't realize that Tarantula has followed him up to the roof. She says, don't talk to yourself, Credo. Talk to me. And Querido means deer. Mm. Nightwing looks at Tarantula with a blank expression. I failed you. Utterly. Catalina, I'm so, so sorry. Tarantula puts a finger up to Dick's mouth and says, shh. That's worth mentioning that Dick had taken this Tarantula on as something of a mentee. He's been trying to show her the ropes and keep her from being too psychotic. Yeah, Uh, yeah, exactly, and keep her from being murderous and stuff. (laughs) Uh, Tarantula then, well... Gently pushes Dick down to the ground. It would appear that there might have been some toxin on her fingers she just held against his lips. Don't touch me. I'm... Everything's all right, baby. It's okay. Poisonous. Numb. I I killed him. We we killed. I killed him. Now hush. Tarantula then mounts Nightwing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And And he says, no, you're my responsibility. It's my fault. My fault. Quiet, mi amor. Callado. And callado means quiet. So she's doing that thing where she says the same things in two languages. 
very instructive. That's right. So this is almost like a primer on learning Spanish. It's it is. Yeah. <laughs> now, Tarantula then proceeds to um, grind on Dick's... Yeah. Uh, well, you know. That's good. That's right. We're free now. Alive, querido. Yes, you and me. You can't hurt us anymore, baby. It's over. It's all over. What is there to be afraid of now? Nightwing thinks to himself, it's never going to stop. Never going to stop. Never. Uh, please, for all of our sakes, please do stop. Uh, do stop, That yes. really... Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a scene. It that's is. quite a scene in a mainstream <laughs> comic book, right? Uh, it certainly is, yes, with a legacy character, mm, uh, Batman's buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, that's definitely something to, something to think about, something, something to bite on right there. Uh, it turns out there was quite a fan response, wasn't there, Chris? Yes, there was. Uh, fans didn't really dig it. Uh, but we're going to start with some comparisons made before we get into the really dicey stuff here. Uh, we alluded to it earlier, but clearly... Daredevil Born Again is one of those things that springs to mind when you look at uh, the story that led up to this issue and yeah. part of the issue itself. Um, Born Again ran from Daredevil number 227 to 233, February through August 1986 from Marvel, written by Frank Miller with art by David's Ma- David Mazzicelli. The story features the kingpin discovering Daredevil's true identity and then systematically breaking Matt Murdock down. Yeah, and then since here, Blockbuster's very much in his Wilson Fisk mode. Uh, by this point, he's torched Hart Haley's circus, blown up Dick's apartment building, kill, killing nearly everyone inside, and almost blew up the Bloodhaven police station. It's kind of easy to see why folks drew this comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, also visually, like you say, it looks a lot like uh, a little kingpinish yeah. guy. Uh, Usenet sprung into full-blown arguments over this, as many people believe that Grayson, not growing up in comics, never actually read Born Again, which is a pretty silly argument because it's not hard to read at any point. It's a, one of the dumbest arguments you, you know, can come you, up with. I, you can read it. I read it like a few years ago myself. Yeah. Uh, just reread it for fun. So <laughs> Now, it's uh, worth noting that, that even the cover to Daredevil 227, February 1986, is not – it's not exactly the same, but it's not – also, it's also not totally yeah. dissimilar to the cover of the book we just read. Um, there's, it's like you got the kingpin looking over Manhattan. Here you have uh, Blockbuster looking over Bloodhaven. Uh, it's there are similarities to be seen here. I, we don't know if they're intentional. Uh, right. We might think they they probably most definitely were, but who knows? It seems that way. Uh, we also thought that it could have been possibly an editorial directive. Do a do a born again for Nightwing. Uh, who, yep. who knows? It's yeah. very very possible. Yeah. Uh, now we won't go any further into born again here because it's definitely that one that we're gonna very likely discuss long form. Oh yeah, in, one of my very favorites. That one. I'm Absolutely. Surprised we haven't done it already, but we'll get to Same it. Same here. <laughs> uh, now there was something that went on. Uh, the Nightwing was not the first nor last male hero to be the victim of comic book rape. Uh, actually, if we think about it, this isn't the first time that Nightwing himself was even raped. In the post-Titans hunt era of New Titans, Team Titan member Mirage poses as Dick's then-girlfriend Starfire and tricks him into sleeping with her. But that definitely would definitely be a, a lengthy court case if it ever went, because there's something... <laughs> we don't know what to say about polymorphs in this situation, but... Uh, that said, the freshest male rape in the minds of comics fans at this time uh, was when Jack Knight was raped by Mist. Uh, couldn't find that issue sometime early in the run. This was a sexual encounter that would result in her getting pregnant. 
Now, other notable cases, even though the, the Starman one was the freshest, uh, got a touch on Green Arrow and Shadow. Uh, this is uh, another example. Early in the Mike Grell run, Oliver Queen was raped by Shadow while he was delirious with a fever. Now, this happened in Green Arrow, Volume 2, Number 11, December 1988, cover date. This would lead to pregnancy just like the one before and uh, also the birth of Robert Queen. Probably the most famous unwitting father uh, would be the case of Talia al Ghul drugging and raping Batman and giving birth to our current Robin, Damian Wayne. This happened in Batman's Son of the Demon, September 1987. That's pretty much the only way these guys have kids, right? They gotta Seems get, like <laughs> they got to get raped. Anyway, <laughs> uh, in an interview with Alvaro's comic boards, Devin Grayson was asked, male rape is a topic rarely touched on in comics. Why is it suited to bring it to Nightwing? And then she'd reply, for the record, I'd never used the word rape. I just said it was non-consensual. I know. Aren't writers frustrating? Smiles. Which would come back to bite her with the quickness, and they yeah. definitely should have. Uh, ten years later, in an interview with the Batman universe, the question of rape versus non-consensual sex came up, to which she took ownership of her verbal faux pas. She said, I was wrong. I messed up that one up, and I apologize. My interview comments were uninformed and ignorant, and I'm grateful for, to the, for the chance to revisit the issue. And then she goes on to explain, I used a literal rape as a metaphorical nadir, and I know better. Or at least I should have known better and certainly do now. I was concentrating so hard on other elements of that scene, which felt so much more narratively significant to me, uh, Blockbuster's murder primarily, that I totally lost sight of the power and non-symbolic consequence of the gesture I was using. By the time I realized the severity of the mistake and how harmful it might have been to actual survivors of sexual abuse and assault, myself included, I had run out of time to make it right. I'm not sure I could have made it right, mind you, but I did ha at least have the intention of bringing the story back around so that the act didn't exist completely devoid of consequence or analysis. But it does, and I regret that more deeply than I can say. So many factors went into that debacle, including an avalanche of increasingly arbitrary and bizarre crossover demands from upper editorial and the company's failure to honor previously approved story outlines. But the responsibility for the ineffective and potential harmfulness of that scene lies solely with me. And that, I think that's kind of big of her because we, we talked about this a little off the air. Um, we talked about editorial directives. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, part of me thinks that editorial said, don't call this rape. I mean, sure. I, I'm speaking completely out of turn here, but I, 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 it feels like an editorial, especially at the time, would maybe say, don't call it that. You know, yeah, call it and, anything and, else you can. And that's why we're throwing out this term and, and then sticking to it, you know, and then like yeah. double, doubling, tripling down. Doubling on down, it. yeah. Uh, it doesn't Absolutely. seem, it definitely seems like a legal department kind of directive. Uh, yeah, but anyway, yeah. we don't know for yeah, you sure. Don't want to don't want to paint themselves into that corner. And uh, the uh, the crossover demand she's discussing is uh, this is when the mid aughts crises happened or the crises. Uh, we had uh, things like identity crisis. We had uh, infinite crisis. Infinite we crisis, had fifty two. Yeah. The the entire DC no, landscape was that. yeah. We had it was everything was upended. So it took a little while for the consequences of this action to actually go down. Yeah. Um, now uh, this led to a fair amount of uh, muck online and uh you know it's funny how when people are happy with the work you do uh, they kind of leave your personal yeah. life alone or even if they're aware of some things in your personal life they kind of just let them slide uh but when they're angry at you or something you did uh all bets are off oh yeah 
following the release of this issue, fans took it upon themselves to really dig into Grayson's past and personal life, citing reasons for why she'd write an event like this and, uh, what's more, why DC would go along with it. We mentioned fan fiction earlier, so let's talk a little bit about fan fiction now. Before going pro, of course, Devin Grayson was a somewhat prolific fan fiction writer, and this isn't unusual. No. Many of her contemporaries, including Jay Ferber and uh, and Brian K. Vaughn, were also fanfic writers, and I'm sure there's plenty of other pros Absolutely. that read today that started their uh, that got their chops there. Mm-hmm. Now, where this gets a little dicey is when we look at some of the subject matter. Yeah, uh, yeah, it gets a little strange. There was one story written by Grayson that features a character who is Nightwing in all but name, being found beaten to a pulp under a bridge by a brunette woman. And uh, yes, Devin Grayson is a brunette woman. Uh, she takes the costume fella home and nurses him back to health, while at the same time falling in love with him. Uh, we were unfortunately unable to get a full copy of this story, though we did try, but that's basically the gist of it. Yes. Now here in Nightwing's version of Born Again, Grayson made it so that one of the most well-connected and most well-liked members of DC's pantheon of heroes is somehow completely alone. Mm -hmm. He can't turn to anybody, and the only person who's, quote, on his side is is this plucky brunette who saves him. Yeah. Um, Now, much of Grayson's fanfic work, as well as a novel that she'd write that we will be discussing in a few minutes, has been derided as nothing more than slash fiction. Yeah, slash fiction is a genre of fanfiction with a particular focus on same-sex relationships, which may or may not be evident or intended in the source material. Uh, we sometimes call that shipping these days, right? That's yeah. Some, uh, many believe the term was coined in early Star Trek fan fiction circles, where which featured Kirk slash Spock stories, often written by female fans. In fact, they would even denote them as K slash S stories to indicate a Kirk-Spock romance. Now, another criticism concerns the use of a Mary Sue character. A Mary Sue, for those unaware, is an idealized character inserted into a story, often as an author insert or to facilitate author wish fulfillment. This is another term with its origins in the Star Trek fandom community. A story called A Trekkie's Tale, written by Paula Smith in 1973, uh, appeared in fanzine Menagerie Number 2. This was a parody story that featured Lieutenant Mary Sue. She was the youngest lieutenant in the fleet, only 15 and a half years old. And the story that kicked off this term was only 10 paragraphs long. Oh, bless it, though. I mean, you know, (laughs) sometimes that's about as long as I want to read some of these stories. True. Uh, Menagerie editors, and we assume that readers, hated this type of character, which we assume was popping up a lot in Trek fanfics, prompting the parody to begin with. They said, Mary Sue stories the adventures of the youngest and smartest ever person to graduate from the Academy and ever get a commission at such a tender age, usually characterized by unprecedented skill in everything from art to zoology, including karate and arm wrestling. The character can also be found burrowing her way into the good graces, heart, mind of one of the big three, Kirk, Spock, or McCoy, if not all three at once. She saves the day by her wit and ability, and if we're lucky, has the good grace to die at the end, being grieved by the entire ship. Now, when asked about whether or not Tarantula was a Mary Sue for Grayson by the Batman universe, she responded with, For the record, I never wanted to be romantically involved with Dick Grayson. Like many of the readers following his exploits, I wanted to be him, not do him. 
However, in a 2015 article from ComicsAlliance.com, which was focused on Nightwing's, quote, hotness, Grayson would say the following. She says, if you want me to admit that I if you want me to admit that I almost certainly would never have read, much less written comics, if not for becoming infatuated with Nightwing, I'll do so willingly. When we talk about attracting females to mainstream superhero comics, one of the components of that should be literal attraction. It's astonishing to me that sexy male superheroes aren't marketed as aggressively as sexy male vampires or sexy male boy bands. There's obviously tons of money to be made there. There is no one on no one, no one on the planet that will devote more energy, social media advocacy, and money to a favored cause than a smitten teenage girl. She'd also blame fan culture for the for overuse of the term Mary Sue to describe any female character that a female creator introduces, which might be a valid complaint a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, she also name drops Marv Wolfman and cites his introduction to Terry Long as a love interest for Donna Troy as a male Mary Sue, uh, which is arguable. It is. <laughs> for more on the life of, and times of Terry Long, check out episode number 72 of The Cosmic Treadmill. That's from January 7th, 2018. It's in the archives at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Yeah, so another thing that uh, the muckrakers dug up here, uh, early on in her career, a comic industry veteran and at the time member of DC Editorial, Mark Wade was Devin Grayson's live-in boyfriend. Uh, We didn't really dig into dates uh, to know what happened when and how. Uh, Really, it's... Not not much of our business, uh, but at the same time, it's difficult to admit this kind of thing. Uh, I think it's kind of irresponsible to leave this out when discussing the life sure. and time of a creator, um, and also the perceived hows and whys certain stories were able to be told and uh, why some were not. So yeah. it's 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 kind of kind of hinky, but uh, we're just going to leave it at that. Well, I mean, it wasn't really a secret. Uh, Devin mentioned it casually in Wizard Magazine interview, uh, uh, issue number 88, December 1998, cover date, but didn't get much online play outside the harder core Usenet corners until after the release of this issue of Nightwing that we read today. Her relationship with Wade was often fairly or not cited as the reason she, she was given her break in the biz. Uh, we don't really have anything more to say on the matter. We don't know, obviously, what they would, you know, that's a lot of conjecture, a lot of uh, assumptions you can make. It would, it's irresponsible to leave it out of the conversation. We know they were living together. That's, that's yeah. the fact. So there it is. Now, more with Grayson here. She remained on Nightwing until issue 117, April 2006 cover date. She only missed uh, issues 101 through 106, which ran March through June 2005, and those were written by a returning Chuck Dixon. They were a Nightwing year one story. From 2006 until 2009, we find no writing credits, and uh, only a single credit for the year 2009 and one for 2010, and really not a whole lot more after that. Uh, Until very recently, though, uh, Devin is currently writing Marvel Rising, which is focused on the next generation of Marvel heroes. Uh, More on her from her website. She currently lives in Northern California with her husband, stepson, cat, and hypoglycemic alert service dog, Cody. Uh, Grayson has insulin-dependent type 1 diabetes, and Cody is trained to alert her to severe drops in her blood glucose level. Which I thought was, by the way, awesome. Also, I've heard of such a thing. I I was almost like, I almost want to go into this, but this really doesn't have anything to do. But the fact that they can train dogs... 
to sense to that know. in people yeah. is amazing and unbelievable. Anyway, go, <laughs> go on. That, that, that is, I, I wanted to expand on that too, but I figured we'd go a little bit too far off the deep end. Probably, but that is yeah. Super cool. Um, now, she devotes her time to nonprofit work for causes ranging from GLBTQ rights to medical service dog training and T1 diabetes awareness. Yeah, she has a few awards and nominations. In 1999-2000, Comics Buyer's Guide Award for Favorite Writer was nominated. In 1999, the Lulu Awards, the Kimberly A. Yale Award for Best New Talent. She won that one. And in 2001, she was nominated for the book User from Vertigo uh, for the Glad Media Award for Outstanding Comic Book. Yes, and I believe User was recently reprinted by Image as a, as a trade, so uh, it shouldn't be too difficult to find. It's actually not too difficult to find in the vertical form either. Uh, it, it pops up all over the place. Um, now, we mentioned a novel that, uh, that, that Ms. Grayson wrote, and uh, it was called Inheritance. In uh, June of 2006, Grand Central Publishing released Inheritance. It's, it's actually called DC Universe colon Inheritance. And uh, this is a canon DC novel, and uh, from the sounds of it, needs to be seen to be believed. Yeah, this really... <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> we'll read a few passages for you now. Yeah. On page 48, a scene featuring Nightwing, Green Arrow, and Arsenal begins with Dick, he barked, using the young man's civilian name. Are you coming? The transformation in Nightwing was substantial and immediate, like a soldier caught napping. The young man snapped too instantly his posture aligning perfectly before he obediently started after Green Arrow. Arsenal shook his head derisively, then caught Green Arrow's victorious wink. How high, he mouthed to his former guardian, mocking Nightwing's predictable response to his martial, to martial orders. Works every time, Green Arrow mouthed back. Arsenal smiled, then dropped his eyes, suppressing the desire to add, Not for me. Dick only responded that way to older men, and only if they were being deliberately unkind. Or, in Batman's case, chronically impassive. Uh, then, <laughs> then on page 49, we have a conversation between Green Arrow and Aquaman. It goes, a few paces ahead, Aquaman had caught up with Green Arrow. You boys looking good, he commented, both because it was true and because he was making an effort to honor the role he had assumed as Green Arrow's chief entertainment. Yeah, he is, isn't he? Ollie sounded pleased. That kid's always been a looker. They all are. No wonder people like to speculate. Arthur frowned slightly as Ollie laughed. I meant he looked healthy, Arthur clarified. <laughs> oh yeah? Ollie said it was undaunted. I meant the superhero sidekick thing. How everyone assumes we're doing dirty things with these gorgeous kids in the... Arthur used his most regally authoritative voice to cut his friend off. I know what you meant. You never got that as much. Guess the whole breathing underwater thing is freaky enough. But bats? Man. Well, look at that kid. No wonder. Yikes! Uh-huh. Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, I would have read this much of the actual novel, you know that, but here we are. <laughs> um, while on the subject of Ollie's fascination with Dick Grayson, uh, thanks for the shower. This is another, another excerpt. Thanks for the shower. Nightwing frowned at Green Arrow, taking his boots off one at a time to shake the water out of them. That wet hair thing really works for you, kid. You look like the cover of a romance novel. Oh, that sounds like something normal that a uh, that, man that would Green say. Green Arrow would say, right? Sure, that sounds like perfectly. Uh, I would be perfectly fine to hear that. I'd be like, well, <laughs> shucks. Uh, <laughs> on to page sixty-two of the same book. It it reads: 
Arsenal leaned forward to refill his glass from the tap, and Nightwing was just about to hop back over the counter to try and determine if anyone was still conscious when he felt a presence obliterate the space immediately behind him. Simultaneously, Roy's beer glass hit the rubber mat behind the bar with a th soft thud. For just one fraction of a second, Nightwing closed his eyes and exhaled in time with a hot release of breath on the back of his neck, sinking his breathing to the presence behind him almost instinctively. Even after all these years, the strange feeling of protective danger that ran up the back of his spine when he unexpectedly found himself in his mentor's shadow thrilled and overwhelmed him. What are you doing? The voice was dark and thick, and the question, though spoken less than two centimeters from Nightwing's left ear, was directed at Green Arrow. The entire room fell silent as all eyes turned to Batman. Only Nightwing remained with his back to him. Batman was standing so close behind him that Nightwing couldn't turn around without bumping into him. Batwing had learned years ago that it was the only way to keep him still. Oh, yeah, yucky. Yeah, I think we're going to need to use Green Arrow, shall we? Here a little Please, bit. yeah. Now, it was during Inheritance that Dick's touch junkieism was made uh, canon, I guess. Maybe. Some quotes. Dick, on the other hand, was a tried and true romantic, and also Roy had come to realize a contact junkie. Uh, it gets worse, uh, it reads. It didn't seem to matter to Dick whether he was kissing someone or kicking them as long as there was contact, and the only person or thing that could distract him when he was physically engaged was Batman. Roy had grappled with Dick on more than one occasion and never failed to be blown away by the intensity of it. A lot of, a lot of choice words used there. You got that right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit more Roy Dick drama. Roy hated Nightwing for hungering for praise as desperately as he himself did. He hated Batman for being the cause of Nightwing's star starvation. He hated himself for the tremor of envy that ran up the back of his neck at the sound of Ollie praising Dick. And he hated Ollie for wielding such a dangerous weapon. Okay, and then some Bruce Dick. Uh, it reads, without thinking, he threw himself across his mentor's back, clasping his arms around his throat and burying his face into the back of the man's warm neck. I'm here, he said, holding him as tightly as he possibly could. His feet rose just off the ground as he clung to Bruce's neck. I'm here and you're not alone. Bruce turned and grabbed Dick in his arms, moving him like a tiny doll until he had pressed against his chest. Dick's small feet were in the mud again. He was standing on his tiptoes between Bruce's knees. Bruce cupped the back of his head with one large hand and pressed it against his massive shoulder. After a long moment, Bruce rose and took one of Dick's hands in his own. Come on, he said. It's cold out here. Let's get you inside. From that moment on, Dick understood the true nature of their partnership. I think we're starting to understand it too, aren't we, Chris? I was going to say, I was going to say, I had no clue until... Uh, I'm learning until a lot of now. things about their partnership here. Uh-huh, and, and this, we want to remind you, this is not on a website. This nope. is published This is not book. fan fiction. This is a published yes. novel, yep. And uh, Dick also learns what it means to be a ward while on a flight to Japan. I'm going to read from uh, the book here. He says, His mind had seized onto a single word that seemed to hold his entire fate in its balance. And more than anything, he needed it explained it, it needed it explained to him. Needed to be sure he understood its definition. He thought back through the 218 passengers he had instinctively counted on his way to his seat while boarding and remembered that one of them had been carrying a law book. 
He jumped out of his aisle seat and headed for the 5'11", 165-pound, brown-haired and hazel-eyed Caucasian male in 18B. Don't know why all those identifiers needed to be there. I guess, I guess that he's got that amazing, you know, memory his, or whatever. Yeah, yes, his very photographic. Up, up, observational or whatever. Yes. We're going to continue. Uh, excuse me, sir. I'm sorry to bother you, but are you by any chance a lawyer? The man blinked up at the unusually handsome teenager frowning down at him and patted the empty aisle seat next to him. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. I, I practice contract law for Madison and Brynn in Gotham. He stuck out a hand, which Dick accepted and shook. Peter Bustanti. I'm Dick. What can I help you with, Dick? Peter looked. Peter still looked somewhat startled, but Dick was too preoccupied to notice. He rarely took note of the impact his charisma and intensity had on the people around him. Continues, can you explain the term ward to me, like what it means to be someone's ward? Peter loosened his collar slightly as he answered, as in ward of the state. Dick shook his head. No, like someone was suspicious was specifically, uh, like you're a ward of a particular person. Peter swallowed, squared his shoulders, and got his professional poker face back on. It's pretty much the same idea, really. A ward is a minor or an incompetent person placed under the care or protection of a, or a guardian or court. Or a guardian, it sounds like in your case. If you're a ward, that just means you're in someone's legal custody, that's all. Dick's brows furrowed, and then he began to fidget with his own fingers. But you said a minor or incompetent person. So if I'm someone's ward now, what happens when I turn 18? Peter smiled and nodded. Well, assuming you're competent, which you very much seem to be, you'd be automatically emancipated. In Gotham, at least 18 means you're of legal age. You'll be a free man. And my guardian? Peter shrugged. Doesn't really have any legal responsibility to you from that point on. If there's a matter of an inheritance or something, I would look over the paperwork for you, or... No, uh, that's okay. Dick stood and started to move back to, into the aisle, and then offered his hand again and shook Peter's firmly. The cabin pressure was starting to hurt his ears. Thanks, that's all I needed. Taking, the teenager's pale com taking in the teenager's pale complexion, the lawyer looked concerned. Are you okay, Dick? Yeah, I, uh, thank you. Thanks. But Dick was not okay. Alrighty then. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, we have we we could definitely you know give our comment on some of the content there, but uh, doesn't seem like a great novel. That's all I'm gonna say. Right now. <laughs> doesn't seem like a great novel that I want to read. But uh, no. that pretty much wraps us up for Devin Grayson for now. Kind of uh, finish. Uh, <laughs> talking about that and go to someone much less controversial, Patch Zercher. Okay. Uh, finish him up. Zercher left Nightwing immediately after this issue and hopped back to Marvel to provide art for the Cable Deadpool series where he'd remain for the first half of the book's run. During his Marvel stint, Zercher would get the opportunity to work on several properties including Hulk, Captain America, Hawkeye, and the Avengers. Was part of the Valiant relaunch of 2012, providing artwork for the first six issues of Shadow Man, December 2012 to April 2013. And then he returned to DC Comics, and he's part of their early creative team for the weekly New 52 Futures End Maxi series. In 2016, during DC's Rebirth Initiative, Zercher joined Dan Jurgens on Action Comics, which he had which had returned to its original legacy numbering with issue 957, early August 2016. And I think he's uh, 
exclusive with DC, if, if not exclusive. I though, think so too. Yeah. He, he he seems to get regular work from them. He did. Uh, I think he's doing Terrifics coming up. I think he did an issue of Hal Jordan recently, though. I think uh, you're right. Yeah. So yeah, he, he he he's still around. He's still out there, folks, doing his art, and it looks pretty sweet. I must say it does. Oh, he's he's yeah, definitely top ten, if not top five, for sure. Um, now we we talked about fan backlash, and uh, we figured why not talk about other. Are you telling examples? me, Chris, there were other times in comics <laughs> that comics fans were angry? I I I can't picture comic it. I can't. Comic fans, especially on the internet, are usually very docile, very calm, level. very yeah, very level-headed. <laughs> but <laughs> but there are a few times they have a problem with what a what a creative team has in store for them and we'll just cover a few of those today uh we're gonna start with heat now we've already talked about hal's emerald advancement team uh in the past of course we know they were originally hal's emerald attack team right which they decided sounded a little too terroristy especially in light of their tactics which we will discuss in a moment uh their website glheat.tripod.com is still up and accessible and we will link to it in the show notes and on the website um now this uh, group of folks were rather unhappy with hal jordan's removal as green lantern during the events of 1994's emerald twilight you can check out cosmic treadmill episode 5 for our discussion of that status quo shifting storyline in the archives and uh while you're perusing those archives feel free to check out cosmic treadmill episode 39 where we cover the first outing of hal's replacement oh, it's like one of the most covered moments uh, we we've done in this show we also have the zero <laughs> year stuff i mean geez yep. uh their mission statement was as follows <laughs> as green lantern fans it is our goal to encourage and advocate the return and exoneration of hal jordan as green lantern the restoration of the green lantern legend and the revival of the honorable green lantern Corps. Yeah, these goofs reportedly sent death threats to DC Editorial as well as then-Green Lantern writer Ron Mars. They also paid $3,500 to run a full-page ad in Wizard Magazine, and for the privilege of being mercilessly mocked by Wizard Magazine, which, in truth, they should have, and that all worked out very well. And this is before, like, GoFundMes and, and stuff like that. So th- this is 3500 bucks out of their own pockets. Oh, yeah. This. Oh, yeah. I mean, but they, they, and they had to scrape it together. I mean, I assume they yep. had to forward each other checks and all kinds of annoying right? things. Boy, and imagine. boy, what an important cause it was, too. And, and, and look, at, look at what they got done, though. <laughs> Great. They've got a website still up in 2018. That's, that, is, that is actually pretty impressive, i got to admit. I like that. Pod website. Yeah, that, that's that's the, like the oh. last piece of comics history left in the universe will be that thing. <laughs> so uh, the next thing is Ma- Micah Ian Wright. He was born February 7th, 1974 in Lubbock, Texas. After working in animation, Wright entered the comics field in March of 2002 working for Wildstorm. During the lead up to the Iraq war, he published several remixed propaganda posters in an anti-war protest book. You back the attack, we'll bomb who we want. And he received a fair amount of backlash, including, according to him, death threats. It's always comes oh, down yeah. to death threats, uh, which really are easy to make. It's the, it's the sure. carrying through with the threat is the, it's the hard part. Hmm. But uh, at which time, in order maybe to validate his opinion, he claimed to have served as an army ranger during the 1989 invasion of Panama. You know, when he was 15 years old. Yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, Washington Post gossip columnist Richard Leiby extolled the virtues of the remix posters, uh, at which time he, Leiby, was contacted by several legit Army Rangers who had a sneaking suspicion that Wright was, you know, full of it. This led to Leiby investigating Wright's claims and eventually writing an expose. 
Finally, on April 25th, 2004, when he was uh, the writer of Stormwatch Team Achilles, Wright would come clean. He wrote, My name is Micah Wright. I'm a former Army Ranger, and I've been lying to you. I've kept the secret for years now, but all lies grow and eventually get out of control. This is me coming clean about my big lie. What did I lie about? Oh, nothing much, except that I was never an Army Ranger. I never served a day in the Ranger Regiment. I never went to Ranger School. The closest I ever got was Army ROTC. The entire Army Ranger thing is a stupid lie which has its roots back in college. When I was in the Army ROTC, and I really was, trust me, I met a lot of Rangers and got to know some of these amazing men. They always impressed me with their inspired competence and their commitment to one another. Though I enjoyed my time in Army ROTC, I decided that eight years of military service was not for me and I left the program. That ended my involvement with the military. So why come clean now, you ask? Why shouldn't I continue on seeing how far I can push it? Well, frankly, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of lying to my friends, to employers, to my fans, to myself. I'm not a ranger. I've lied to so many people about this that it's made me physically ill. I haven't been able to sleep and I've just about given myself an ulcer. It's all become too much. I'm stopping the lies. The cat's out of the bag now. I've finally told the truth. I wish I had a long time ago. In the last dozen last year in the last year dozens of real rangers have been killed or wounded overseas. How can I keep lying in the face of that kind of dedication? When I when I read about the death of Pat Tillman, who sacrificed a high-paying football career in order to join the Rangers, I felt like even more of a fake and a heel. It's time it all ended. I'm not a Ranger. I was never a Ranger, and I'm sorry for ever saying that I was. I apologize to every Ranger and to the families of every Ranger. I lied, and I apologize for that from the bottom of my heart. It was a lousy thing to do, and I'm sorry about it. A special apology is owed to the people who I hurt by putting them in a position of spreading my lie. People taken in by the hoax and people whose credibility I helped corrode. There's one thing I didn't imagine, that I couldn't imagine, that a lie like this would grow and grow and eventually consume every facet of my entire life. It has weighed on my heart and on my mind for two full years now, slowly crushing my spirits, contaminating my friendships, and threatening to destroy everything about me. I'm well shed of it now. I just hope that others can find it in their hearts to forgive me. And it is kind of weird he starts this whole thing by saying, uh, my name is Micah Wright, I'm an Army Ranger. And I'm Ranger. an Army Ranger. And then yeah. the next thing is, I'm not an... You know, just don't even... Don't don't open with that. Uh, <laughs> fans and fellow pros came out to call Wright out on his long-lived lie, including Kurt Busiek, who, on Wright's own forum, wrote the following. A suggestion, Micah? Stop defending yourself. It only makes it worse. You've already confessed to being a liar after years of insisting that you were telling the truth. Every time you insist that people take your word for something now, whether it's that you got death threats so they shouldn't judge you or that you came forward first and the post is therefore lying, or that all your friends told you to post self-serving shit about how big media should have checked up on you, all you're doing is making another claim with no credibility behind it. Could be so, could be no. But you have no standing to say, trust me, it happened the way I said it did. You burned that platform yourself and got attention and money in the process. Music continues. The only way to recover, to whatever extent you're going to, is to move forward. Not make more unverifiable claims, but buckle down and do good work. Whatever hole you're in, deal with it. You dug it. It's your hole. Do enough good work and people will start to judge you on that. Do it long enough and it'll outweigh this. Don't get huffy about the criticism and bitch about how people are being unfair to you. You lied to them. You admitted it. 
Stand up and take the reaction your statements have brought on brought on you and move forward. And he continues, if you feel like if if you feel you took a few unfair lumps in the process, too bad. Think about the people who you called liars and haters. Think about Carlos Danda and suddenly having devoted month of his life to a tainted project. Think about the folks at Oni dealing with having a big stack of inventory. They thought your name would help but will now actually hurt. Think about how fair that is. And quit bitching that you don't like the criticism. And uh, while the Iraq War was and still is a divisive subject among the American public, comic fan and otherwise, lying about combat service to avoid criticism seemed like one thing everyone could agree was pretty icky. Mm-hmm. DC even canceled his pending and already partially in the can Vigilante miniseries. Yeah, I think that was the Carlos Danda project. Yeah. It was uh, the Vigilante one. It's a pretty uh, pretty crazy story. Um, sure. It, it reminds it, me of like the, uh, uh, what's his name, George Costanza lying about the house out in Montauk, you know, just like, yeah. let's right. get nuts, let's keep going, you know. <laughs> Sloopy and Slippery Pete. Right. Or Prickly Pete, yes. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> and it's, you know, the, the, the war is, is very divisive, even to this day. I'm sure if you hashtagged sure. Iraq war on Twitter, you're going to get tons of Commentary. both sides coming, coming. So it's a... Uh, it's it's just not a, not a not a good look for uh, Mr. Wright there, no. and uh, hasn't done a whole lot in comics since. After being one of like the Wizard creators, you know, like uh, Wizard was touting him for a while. And yeah. Not so much after this. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about another one. Uh, this is a lesser known controversy, uh, probably due to comic book resources going out of their way to purge any sign of it from the internet. It has to do with counting pages. Now, it's usually cited that this began with Astonishing X-Men Ghost Boxes number 1 that had a cover date of December 2008. This was an early $3.99 comic for Marvel, notable for its only having 16 pages of story. So you're paying 4 bucks for 16 pages. Yikes. Now, in the years that followed, Marvel and DC would, would, they would up the prices on many of their books from $2.99 to $3.99. Uh, early on, DC would attempt to add value by having backup features, which, you know, were okay, I guess. Uh, Marvel did just the opposite. In addition to raising prices, they actually lowered their page count from 22 pages of story to 18 to 20 pages of story. And, uh, you know, fans online, this did not go on. They were counting, yep. Uh, <laughs> An intrepid Marvel fan started a thread on CBR's message boards to express concern over this trend and to begin tracking the page count on all Marvel's books. This was met with mixed reactions. Many fans were surprised that Marvel was cutting pages, while others were surprised that anybody would bother to count said pages. CBR circled the wagons with the quickness, and many a Marvel staffer visited the thread, not to explain the cut, but mock the man who started the thread. CBR began removing posts willy-nilly, which also removed a lot of the context of the discussion in an attempt to make Marvel look somewhat virtuous in the situation. And, of course, as typically, mock the concerned user base. Mm-hmm. The thread would eventually vanish, and CBR would slash and burn their forum altogether shortly thereafter. Yeah, like in 2012 or 11 or I something think like so, that. Yeah. But yeah, and it's you know this is still we still get I believe 20 pages of story from both DC and I Marvel so. for whatever you're paying. So. Take that as you, as you like, folks. If if you think that's fine, then <laughs> then, then you good. for you, yeah. <laughs> I, I I this is one of the things that really made me stop. I, you know, I had long stopped been being a Marvel zombie, but at this point, I 
I really started moving over to DC more yeah. just because of the just because of the treatment you give to your customers. And right. uh, I mean, that's something we can discuss for hours probably. But to to come in and mock people for not getting not for feeling they didn't get their money's worth seems kind of. I mean, there, there's a, like there's another way to handle it without even changing your policies. Just being polite, you know, being being nicer about it and sending the kid a sticker or whatever. That would that's what they should have done, but whatever. <laughs> It could have been, because I'm I'm going back to like uh, the DC editorials of like uh, 1972, I think it was, where they actually explained why prices were going up, and they had each of the editor, the group editors, write a little something about what they're going to try to do to counterbalance yeah. the increase in price, and that's all it would have taken. It would have cost them nothing. To just be like, hey, sure. you know, this is the way it is. But instead, they're like, oh yeah, you're a nerd because you counted. It's like. Well, I was just buying. I was just giving you four bucks a month. I know. <laughs> I, I yeah. do that I'm, now. I'm, I'm, I'm merely a consumer at a retail point of purchase. But you know what it is, sure. Chris? Is that that person is not nearly as important as the person buying the wholesale. You know what I mean? So that's that's where the advertisement usually goes. So there, there it is. Now another bit of fan backlash was because of the new Fifty Two. Oh. Yeah, go figure, right? <laughs> now, uh, this initiative was announced on Memorial Day 2011. Many older fans were, at the very least, irritated that DC was about to flush the continuity. Some of them were irritated enough to plan a protest march <laughs> that would occur during that summer's San Diego Comic-Con. A Facebook page popped up with the rallying cry of, Are you utterly baffled, disappointed, and just angry to see how DC ruins your favorite character's designs and wipes decades of comics history out of the mainstream universe? Well, you're not alone. And why not make some noise at the biggest pop culture event this year, where creators, artists, and writers appear in person? Show them how fans, the fans of the classic characters, the nevertheless slightly changing designs, and characters' history and personality really feel about it. And so DC responded to this by, well, sort of mocking the fans in the pages of their comics. <laughs> this one might be worth a mock, I don't know, but uh, on the last page of many August 2001, uh, 2011 dated DC comics, editorial would include an altered cover of Justice League of America number 28 from June 1964, which featured the League protesting to keep their superhero rights. Their signs altered to be more in line with the new 52 protest, so... We have both versions of uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com to look at, yeah. but to describe it, Aquaman sign originally read, protect our super rights, now read, protect our superheroes. Flash carried a sign that originally read, Earth unfair to organize superheroes. Now it read, what do we want? Continuity. When do we want it? Now. Green Lantern and Wonder Woman's banner, uh, they were holding together, that read, the JLA demands the right to work initially, but now reads, or read, the numbering stops here. Superman had a sign that read, lift the ban on Superman, and now it read, what's the plan on Superman? <laughs> now, while this was certainly poking the bear, uh, DC was doing this as a tongue-in-cheek way to assuage the fears of longtime fans. It even says, you know, you don't need to protest on the bottom of the screen, or you don't need to march. Uh, now, this protest march was a pretty sad little affair and uh, yeah. didn't do anything to change any minds, especially when we look at it and consider that most of the folks involved probably bought 
most of the new number yeah, ones that September. Virtually guarantee it, actually. Yeah. Uh, now we'll hand them this much, though. They they actually managed to get DC's attention. Sure. <laughs> you know, they they respond. They replied. Uh, now, for more for our more complete thoughts on the genesis of the all new DC, you can check out Real Comics History episode three in the archives. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is you know, I'll tell you if this protest march had been. A hundred thousand people. We might be, to listen. Yeah, might be having so was talking about something different. But uh, as it was, it was not even close to that many people. So uh, there it was. And they and they'd all probably already pre-ordered the number that's, one. Anyway. That's exactly. I mean, they were they were already looking at those ship numbers, and they were like, "Buddy, we're not changing anything." <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just we just pushed two hundred thousand copies of JLA for the first for the time, first time. nineteen ninety one or whatever. <laughs> We're not doing, we're not changing a blessed thing. Uh, And our last bit of fan backlash, and maybe our most vicious one, right, Chris? Oh, it's awful. It's scary. It was was known as Waffles for Stephanie. Uh, It's kind of a sillier one, we'll say. Taken from a CBR article dated June 26, 2012, fans of Stephanie Brown, that's spoiler in the Bat family, were upset that the character hadn't been reintroduced as a member of the extended Bat family in the new 52 continuity. The announcement that Stephanie Brown would be Nightwing in the Smallville Season 11 comic book only further irritated the spoiler faithful. That was a digital-only comic and yeah. uh, not, you know, not, not correct. Not canon. Yeah. yeah. Taking a cue from the fans of television program Jericho, whose fans flooded CBS headquarters with over 20 tons of nuts in order to get them to co- commit to a second season of the show, Stephanie Brown fans launched the Waffles for Stephanie movement. The campaign blog was located at wafflesforstephanie.tumblr.com. That no longer exists, by the way. Take the word for yeah, take, take a word <laughs> that it stated the following when it comes to contacting DC Comics about their movement. It can be anything from a small note saying how you want to see more Steph to an essay on why you think Steph is an important part of the Batman family. And also, they say, what we don't want is ranting or complaining about replacing Stephanie with Babs or hearing about how much the current Batgirl series sucks compared to Brian Q. Miller's run with Steph. Please try to be civil. We want to be taken seriously. Hmm. Uh, And that's true, actually. uh, Stephanie was Batgirl right before the new 50. Pre-Flashpoint, yeah. That's right. Now, being taken seriously by sending waffles in the post. Yeah, that's okay. uh, that's not going to do it, folks. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe if you send a toaster and syrup, you might people might take it seriously. But yeah. right, <laughs> we're just going to send waffles in the post. There you go. Now their mission statement was as follows: <laughs> uh, Stephanie fans were really excited for Stephanie's appearance, but we're also upset for two reasons. Reason one would be the fact that we think Steph deserves to also appear in the main universe. Reason two is the fact that we fear that DC will make Smallville the only place to find Steph, rather than give her a place in the main universe. To prevent this, we decided to make the Waffles for Stephanie campaign. So, why the waffles, right? I mean, there's got to be a reason here, not just uh, waffle stuff. Uh, Organizers of the Stephanie campaign, Waffles for Stephanie campaign, selected waffles because of the food's recurring role in her pre-Flashpoint Batgirl series. Where apparently waffles presented represented bonding. It was the thing her mother made for her. She made for her one uh, day. Yeah, we, we could say that Stephanie waffles are to Stephanie as wheat cakes are to Spider Man. There you go. We will put it that way. So, what was the result of this? Was uh, nothing really. Uh, DC no. Comics was not bombarded by waffles, probably because waffles cost money and sending them costs money as well. 
Uh, the DC Comics Facebook page was, however, hit by a few thousand comics because Facebook is free to use, and it's very easy. <laughs> and that's why those things, they will never notice or care about your online mm-hmm. anger because it's just too easy to uh, do. And we will uh, include a link to that Waffles article at the blog. So that was some fan backlash. <laughs> It's just funny that they like they compare this to the Jericho thing sending nuts, where I mean it costs you nothing to watch Jericho, right? I right. mean if you have a television, you can watch Jericho. Yeah, you're not spending four dollars a book on 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 a Jericho book. Yeah. It's, what what you need to do is you buy the damn Smallville book and post it saying I only bought this for Stephanie. That's the way to go, exactly. Not just like it's the only way they're going to see it. Just... people also. Oh. I... You know, not that I'm such a knowledgeable person about television, but where's that Jericho show now, folks? I don't know what the deal is. Uh, it could be on its 45th season for all I know. <laughs> I'll actually say that 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 uh, Stephanie as Batgirl at that time, and this was at the exact same time Nightwing was Batman, and uh, Dick Grayson was Batman, and Damien was like the new Robin uh, with him. It, it worked kind of well in that context because, it, that, you know, where Batman and Robin had become kind of light and fun, uh, Batgirl was sort of took the place of the brooding Batman yeah. book that that had been missing. Uh, but still, worth sending waffles in the mail. Worth any of it, you know, folks. Especially when you know that it's ninety nine point nine percent chance that these waffles aren't going to do anything. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, I, yeah, it doesn't put any that doesn't put any dimes in DC's pocket. The the problem is is that fan anger has worked. Yes. And because it ever worked, people keep trying. They think it will always work. <laughs> That's true. But you really got to look at it like, you know, you got to pick your fights in life, folks. And, and I have to say, uh, most of these are probably ones that should not have been picked. But uh, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Uh, we're gonna co- we're gonna top off today with some listener mail. We're gonna pop in first with our friend Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. Uh, he wrote in to us regarding Cosmic Treadmill episode ninety six. This is creepy number one. He says, "I wanted to write to tell you how much I enjoyed the Creepy Magazine episode. Over the years, Creepy and Eerie have become some of my favorite comics, and you you both did a wonderful job discussing the magazines, the creators, and Warren Publishing." I also found the information about Myron Fass really interesting. Thanks for putting up the links in the show notes, too. He seems like a real kook. Yes, he does. Uh, I looked at a cover gallery for his horror comics, and while neat, they just don't compare to what Warren was publishing. Below is one of my favorite all-time covers to any comic or comic magazine. That was Frank Frazetta's cover to issue 11, and we'll put that in the uh, on the blog. Yeah, you can take a look at what that is. It's a, it's a gorgeous cover, and there's no mm-hmm. question about that, about uh, you know, Myron Fass's stuff being yeah. worse. It's, uh, being it's comically bad. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Jeremiah goes on and says, I also want to share one quick story. I have been a longtime fan of Dark Horse Comics, one of my favorites being Hellboy. Anyway, Dark Horse has published a lot of great horror comics over the years, and when they announced they were going to be collecting creepy and then eerie in high-quality volumes, as well as launching a new volume of the comic I was all in. I have been interested in both for some time, but comic magazines are not the easiest items to collect. I decided I was going to collect these volumes and have not looked back. While the comic didn't make much more than a year in the hardbound, um, didn't make it much more than a year, the hardbound volumes of Creepy and Eerie have been awesome. Yes, they are expensive, but in my opinion, they have been worth it. I know it is showing off a little, but I wanted to include a picture of part of my collection because I know that you both would appreciate it. Anyway, it was another quality episode, and I really got a lot out of it. Keep up the great work. 
I'll be listening. And thank you very much, Jeremiah. Yes. Uh, he is, by the way, at uh, comics, comics, comics blog and at mm-hmm. BigOx37 on Twitter. And uh, let me tell you, there were there have been times that I thought I would try to get all those creepies and eeries. And uh, money is one thing, space is another. You know, <laughs> I'll true. tell you, if you don't have, you, you better have empty rows, my friend, if you want to start getting those. You know what I have mm-hmm. been getting in Dark Horse Pussies out too, and I, I think these are worthwhile if space and money and or money is a consideration. Uh, they have like best of Alex Toth in creepy, best of Bernie Wrights. Okay. Uh, I believe they have a, they have a few volumes like that, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're eventually going to go through all of the major contributing artists. Sure. I, they might. I don't think they have a Frazetta. That would be a big uh, missing one. But there's a few. I think Wood might be in there. Oh, so that's awesome. Yeah. Those are those are cool to get if you want to see the content of these magazines, but you don't know if you have an extra thousand dollars and you know, nine feet of uh, shelf space laying around it's true <laughs> so uh yeah that's cool i'm glad to hear it and we'll show those pictures on the blog but uh yes. you know don't go sifting through the metadata trying to mess with our man jeremiah mm-hmm. <laughs> now we have another piece of mail which is very very urgent um big, big this is from uh, ted weidman subject is urgent order he starts hello i am ted a fitness entrepreneur I found your email while searching for retailers of treadmills. I'm interested in buying some Sol S5 and Sol F85 foldable commercial treadmills. Kindly revert to me whether or not you have these treadmills available, and if so, I want to know the prices and various methods of payment accepted. Best regards, Ted Weidman. Well, uh, I don't. We're not selling treadmills at the moment. I mean, I mean, we, you know, we we could monetize this thing by getting some treadmills. Yeah, especially if we get some of the cosmic variety. I'm sure we could really, really make quite a dollar <laughs> make here. Some pack. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's legal, but try to get some cosmic treadmills. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we don't. We sorry, Ted. We do not. Yeah. Uh, sell. We, we any hope you're listening. I'm sure he is. Uh, you know, obviously <laughs> a big a big fan of the show. So. Yes. Uh, if we hear anything, we will definitely get back to you and then let you know what you can we do. We will definitely kindly revert to you. <laughs> that was really, what was that about? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, when you get these emails, they're always like, you know, these, uh, you know, slightly off English-wise, but... What's so polite? What, what do you think the word revert means? Like, I really want to talk to this person. Like, what do you think that sentence means? But anyway... Yes. Uh, maybe out there in listener land, you can help out Ted Weidman. You have a lead yeah. on some treadmills, or maybe you want to we'll talk. you right up with them. Yeah. You could, uh, you, you want to talk about uh, Nightwing. You want to talk about uh, Devin Grayson, Patch Zerker. You want to talk about the controversy, or anything else that's on your sweet mind. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Find us on Facebook at facebook dot com slash cosmic tmail history. Tumblr at CosmicTmailHistory.tumblr.com. And we are at CosmicTmail on Twitter, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our weekly writings on DC Comics, current ones at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and find Chris's personal writings on DC Comics of the recent and sometimes distant past. Uh, Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. I say it again. Uh, <laughs> he where he puts up a new uh, review for a DC comic every single day of the week from any time in DC's history. You besides that Laurel and Hardy, you've kind of been hanging in that uh, early 2000s era sort of ish. 
Yeah, I was trying to get into the gestalt of this issue a little bit, so I did a little bit of uh, the early uh, this arc. I don't even think this arc has a name. Uh, well, no. the Nightwing Born Again, I it guess. It does now. <laughs> I did cover the the issue where his apartment building is destroyed, and I even compared it to uh, when Matt Murdock's building was destroyed. I yeah. put a couple of panels from De- from Daredevil up there to compare. We've, we've um, said before that that blog is so, often many times a corollary to the podcast, yes. so it's, it's good to keep it on your radar, keep looking at it, you never know when you'll get an extra bit of information or something that I said incorrectly corrected on the blog. So uh, uh, this uh, this very issue is also on there. So if you want to see right. the the gory uh, scene in question, it, it's up there. Uh, <laughs> although you could find that one anywhere because it's a uh, it's a well known controversial <laughs> piece. Uh, but I'm going to link your I'll link your review on the uh, cool. blog show notes. Uh, but again, that's Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. And we also have our the show blog here, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find our archives, you can find our show notes, and this week, uh, maybe you can find a little bit of uh, fan pro fan fiction. Maybe yeah. we'll put some of those inheritance <laughs> quotes up there, so folks can folks can uh, get to read it without hearing our voices. Uh, I, I hope we didn't ruin anything for anybody having our voices on on such oh, erotic content. No, but, it ruined it for me. I'll <laughs> tell you that. That's true. <laughs> Oh, boy, that was uh, some pretty uh, nervous stuff. I don't know what to, what to say. Collar tugging. Yes. Yeah, it gave me a little what they call the agita. So, uh, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, we'll let, we'll let you folks make your own decisions, and definitely let us know your feelings about those decisions. We always want to hear from you. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill consensually. See ya. One way or another, I'm gonna find ya. I'm gonna get ya, get ya, get ya, get ya. One way or another, I'm gonna win ya. I'm gonna get ya, get ya, get ya, get ya. One way or another, I'm gonna see ya. I'm gonna meet ya, meet ya, meet ya, meet ya. One day, maybe next week, I'm gonna meet ya. I'm gonna meet ya, I'll meet ya.